Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studios in Beijing. I am your host, Jeremy Goldcorn, solo today uh, because of scheduling uh, f***-ups on my part. Kaiser could not make it uh, this week, uh, which is a shame as we have a very interesting guest, Matthew Crabb, the author of Myth-Busting China's Numbers, subtitled Understanding and Using China's Statistics. Welcome to Seneca, Matthew. Thank you very much. Uh, Matthew, before we get into your book, maybe we can just uh, talk a little bit about your background in China, sure. uh, how you first came here and yeah. uh, how you, you, you came to start your research farm. Sure. Well, I first came to China in 1988 as a, as a foreign student. Uh, I was studying Chinese at Leeds University, having gone through, uh, first of all, going to Leeds to study zoology, uh, then nearly going to Glasgow College of Art to do art, and then somehow I managed to get into Chinese um, basically, I, I was on a holiday in, in Brighton uh, with a bunch of uh, anarcho-punks in, a, in an old battered old van and uh, wandered into a second-hand bookshop in Brighton and saw this book, Teach Yourself Chinese. So I thought, okay, 40 pence, I'll give it a go. Um, and that was really the start of it. Uh, I then went back to Leeds University, having dropped out, and uh, asked them whether I could do Chinese as a, as a major. And they said yes, amazingly, and um, four years of study there. Uh, including coming to Beijing for a year as part of that, and also going to Taiwan. Uh, I then graduated. I worked f as a trans uh, translator and translations manager for a Chinese language newspaper. After that, I uh, worked for a company called Euromonitor in London. Uh, I basically started off their series of China reports on uh, consumer markets. Did that for four years. Uh, thought I could do this better myself. Uh, during the time at uh, Euromonitor, I met Paul French, who was also working freelance for Euromonitor. And Paul French, I should say, has been a guest on, on this program and is the author of the now famous book, <laughs> Midnight in Peking. Now famous, exactly. The now famous Paul French. <laughs> <laughs> Cut uh, your hair, Paul, if you're listening to this. Um, so we, yeah, we set up Access Asia. We did that for 13 years. We had an office in Shanghai, and in 2011, we sold Access Asia to Mintel Group, for who I'm still working. And so, I mean, your whole career essentially has been researching e economic data about China. Yeah, basically, uh, consumer markets, yes. And um, let's go straight in, in, into your book. I mean, uh, the title, Myth-Busting China's Numbers, mm. um, you know, the FT called it uh, an informative primer on murky Chinese data that will light the path of the unwary. Which <laughs> I think it's uh, quite a, a nice thing for them to say about the book. Um, you talk about myth-busting. I mean, w what are the myths that you're, you're referring to? Well, there's so many, it's difficult to know where to start. But I think one of the, the key things that foreign companies have had as a problem in, in uh, coming to do business in China has been misunderstanding what the place is really about. Uh, and China has its, it's such a big country, it has its own gravity and its own logic almost. Uh, and it creates a kind of deconstruction of expectations when people arrive here. They generally think that they know their business, but of course they don't know how their business works in China. And I think when they uh, a lot of companies come here, uh, they need to sort of understand that the, the usual dynamics don't, that they're used to don't work necessarily in China. They need to sort of be, be better educated about China. And it's not just in terms of the statistics, but also just learning about the culture and, and how things work here. But I think the, 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 the market data is a real issue for people because they don't necessarily understand, first of all, what uh, a certain data set might be defined by. 
so definitions are a very important part of really understanding uh, statistics here. Uh, the methodology by which uh, data is produced and and uh, uh, and how the, uh, that is researched and analysed, and of course, you know, every uh, piece of information is political, uh, and there's always a political reason for putting out a certain piece of data, uh, whether it be a trade association trying to promote its particular industry or whatever it is, uh, and being able to sort of filter that out uh, of, of any uh, piece of information. So I think there's always that uh, need for sort of due diligence in any data that's produced. Uh, and of course, then there's always the data that isn't produced. Uh, and you have to ask why that isn't there. And, and, you know, and are we talking that. primarily about the data produced by the government? No, not, not, not just the government at all. Uh, certainly, the, the, the government has uh, limitations to what it can produce and limitations to the accuracy, simply because it's such a big country. Uh, and um, you know, and also it, because there's a lot of lying, no? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, of course, of you know, the, the, you know, all that sort of um, low-level massaging of statistics at the sort of local level gets sort of aggregated up, so that the figures, of course, when they reach Beijing, are often uh, you know quite crudely distorted. Uh, but it's not just the government. I mean, you know, companies, both private and uh, state-owned, uh, you know, many keep three sets of accounts. Um, they understate their earnings but overstate their market shares. Um, and this is this is a real problem, of course, if you're trying to interpret a market and the real dynamics within a market. So um, basically all the information is junk. I mean, is that, is that, can we put it as simply as that? Uh, all, the, all the information is, is pretty much... Uh, open to sort of interpretation it's you know you have to have those caveats in place uh, they can be indicative but they're certainly not uh, a reality but uh, if they're i mean you indicative are they useful i mean it, it, should one just toss most of the stats one gets out completely and start from scratch or, or well i think or that depends still... on what you're trying to do i mean again you know uh, th there's the famous quotes uh, from Li Keqiang about uh, you know G china's gdp figures being uh, man-made, which of course they are. Uh, he was quite right. And they're not necessarily indicative of the real size of the economy here. Mm. Um, now, I think if you're a, a, a company coming to China to do business, do you really need to understand GDP? Does it actually have an influence on what uh, your potential market is here? And I think increasingly it's, a, it's, it's not a very useful indicator of anything. Because mm. most companies, when they come to China, you, you can't cover the whole of China. This idea of, you know, one you know, 0.4 billion potential consumers is, is, is a myth. Um, and companies, when they come here, they have to understand that, you know, set those limitations uh, to be more realistic. They have to understand what, you know, what their product or service is in the Chinese context, who the consumers are likely to be, where they are, which cities, uh, how the, the dynamics of those particular areas, and it might not just be a city, it could be a, a district within a city that's most important to them. Um, so it's, it's getting much more um, down to the sort of specifics of what they need to understand. So if I'm a Acme Plastic Widget mm. Company Limited and I've decided Hunan is my target market, yeah. so I'm going to set up a factory and a sales network in Hunan, how would I get the kinds of data that I need about the market? What would be the best way for me to approach it? Well, I've, I've always approached um, trying to understand market, market sizing and, and market shares and dynamics uh, from the basis of you need as many different uh, sources of information as you can possibly get 
And I think it's it's using those, but again, coming back to the point about methodology, definition, and politics, and being able to apply the, the, the relevant filters. And again, I think that comes down to experience. You really have to experience the place. So if you're going to go to Hunan, set up a factory, you have to spend some time there, get to know it, because it's what's not in the data that's often most important. And But interpreting the data, you know, as well as applying those filters, you have to be able to sort of creatively work with the data to try and um, always uh, challenge the data, I think, is the most important thing. To assume that the data isn't telling the full picture, uh, that the the company counts of the, the joint venture partner or possible joint venture partner you're talking to aren't necessarily correct and you need to sort of do the proper forensic due diligence. So not just on companies, but also on markets. Have you got any examples of... of- outrageously manufactured data or, or or data that has been completely abused by a government department or, or, or a company? Um, there was, I think it was last year, there was a, I can't remember the name of the county now, Gang something in Guangdong province. Can you remember this one? They, they um, The local uh, statistics office had uh, you know, given up to the, the authorities in uh, provincial authorities and then up to Beijing, this GDP figure that was actually four times the real figure uh, in terms of economic production. You know, basically they quadrupled it and then shaved a bit off to make it look about right. <laughs> um, another good example was uh, back in uh, 2010, they did the census and uh, National Bureau of Statistics decided that the, pop- the urban population of Shanghai was something like 14.12 million Whereas uh, a local survey, uh, I think it was called sort of the lo- uh, Shanghai Demographic Survey or something like that, came up with a figure of 18.88. And we all assumed that they, you know, they came up with that figure because of the string of uh, auspicious eights. Oh, and look who's just walked in the door. It is my good friend and co-host, Kaiser. Hey, Welcome, folks. Kaiser. I'm, I'm really sorry about my, uh, my scheduling issues. Yeah, I, you I, kind I, of f***ed up, didn't you? I did. <laughs> I, I need a secretary. And uh, you, you've come a little unprepared, but um, we will just get right into our discussion. Who's this guy? <laughs> <laughs> Matthew Kraft. Hi, Matthew. Hi. Hey. Oh, China's Kraft. numbers. So, I mean, we were just kind of talking about some of the more outrageous um, ways that local governments uh, can make up numbers. Yep. Uh, do do continue. Sorry, yeah. So, what was the the the, the population of Shanghai? I mean, population area. Any city in, in China is always going to be a bit of a best estimate, but yeah. So, the the, the MBS in the census came up with a figure of fourteen point twelve uh, million people, and then this local survey came up with uh, eighteen point eight eight million. And again, we assumed that the, the the number was picked purely because of the string of auspicious eights. Um, it's that bad. A, Somebody well, just—I mean—they may as well have thrown a dart at a board. I think that sometimes you know. does happen. Yeah, yeah. certainly, uh, and it's not just in the um, in, in in government departments. I think you know companies are a lot of the time you know they, they can't necessarily come up with a figure through any um, scientific means, so they just make it up. I mean. This is the kind of stuff you have to deal with, not just in China, of course. I mean, this happens all over the place. Do you? I mean, you've been in in, in market research for. 20 years, basically, yeah. right? Do you, do you find that you ever get clients who pressure you to make a report look a certain way because they need a certain that set of data? That does happen, yeah. Is that, how common would you say that is with Western companies? Western companies generally not. I mean, they usually sort of want to know. They, they want to learn. Um, so it's, it's less of an issue. Um, we find that uh, when trying to sell information to Chinese companies, they're going to be much more critical because they assume that they know their market better than anybody else. Um, 
but I think again, you know, that's that's a, a matter to do with um, the learning process in terms of how to use business information, and I think that's still ongoing here. I mean, the, the market uh, research ongoing, market, I, I would say, is a a, a a rather sort of optimistic way to, <laughs> to put it. I mean, I, I've tried for also almost twenty years to sell stuff to Chinese companies, yeah. and intangibles. I mean, reports, mm. and, uh, 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 designs, yeah. this kind of thing. It's very very tough. It is. Yeah, it is. It very um, and. But it's 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 you know there is a potential market there increasingly, and I think as more Chinese companies uh, are exposed to sort of foreign competition and also foreign markets, uh, they're learning uh, the need for that kind of uh, research. Foreign capital markets, of course, too. I mean, yeah. where, where you know they they have much stricter regulatory control, and they do have to have uh, quite a bit of oversight uh, from, especially from 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 the well. Uh, you know the Ernst and Youngs and the, the the different accounting companies, which yep. they all need to bring on board to be Sarbanes Oxley compliant and so forth. Yeah. I, I when I when I when I sat down here, you guys were were talking about um, local statistics, and uh, you implicated the NBS yeah. as, as as one of the, the culprits in this. Um, that that's different than what I've heard in the past. I mean, I've heard that the NBS is sort of the honest actor. In the this. National Bureau of Statistics. Yes. Yeah, and, and the, yeah, the, the, they're, they're the ones who have sort of blown whistles in the past uh, against I the agree. inflation of, of, of GDP numbers. I or, agree. I think, I think you know, NBS often gets the brunt of the criticism, but I think, you know, they have actually improved their methodologies an, all, an awful lot over the last few years. Uh, and I think the problem that they face is, is that you know, skew that comes from local reporting. Um, that you know, and that aggregates up through the chain, and and uh, the distortions become bigger and bigger as as it goes up each level. So I think they're um, you know they're doing this as well as they can given uh, the the system that they're working with. What kind of checks and balances do do they have against local uh, local uh, manipulation of of of, of data? Uh, that I don't know. I mean, you know, that's uh, that's very much a you know a, p- a political organization thing, and I think obviously with the the the, the whole um, anti-corruption thing at the moment, that you know, not only is it getting rid of the corruption, but it's also hopefully getting rid of the distortions. Can we talk a little bit more about the the National Bureau of Statistics? I mean, how big is it? What you know, how how is it run? Uh, who does it report to? Well, it, it uh, reports to um, the central government, of course. But um, I mean, I I don't really deal with them directly that much. I mean, I use their information, but more and more um, of the time now, I'm I'm looking at a specific sector. So I'm looking at the companies uh, themselves, and 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 very much more region by region. Um, MBS I use as an indicator um, uh, to compare things with, uh, but I don't actually necessarily always use MBS data. I think uh, in terms of their organization, I mean, the last time I went to their headquarters in Beijing, it was in the old building and it was literally broken windows with dust blowing down the corridors and people sitting there with... Uh, charcoal heaters in their offices and uh, obviously things have you know improved an awful lot for the employees if 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 not in terms of the the raw data um so again i think you know it, it's always important to understand that uh, those kind of statistics are produced not just for um you know commercial or economic reasons but also for political reasons so they have their uses but they also have their limitations um, it's useful to understand how the um, MBS data is created, and I, I discuss that in the book in, in, in regard to certain data sets. Um, but really, again, you know, if you're talking about uh, investing here and setting up a company and doing business or selling products to uh, consumers, that kind of national or even provincial data 
is not necessarily what you need now. You need much more sort of localized uh, understanding of, of who your consumers are and, and what they're doing now. Um, because increasingly, um, you know, developments are, are moving along so fast. Things and are changing. So you know, and how, how, how do you go about getting that kind of data then? Well, I mean, you can use consumer surveys. You can um, you know, speak to manufacturers, retailers, and so on. I think you get more of a, an idea of what's really going on at the moment from, from you know, those kind of interviews. Um, I don't know if you know that Alibaba has that data cube um, product where you can actually track uh, sales of different products very very narrow and it can be day by day week by week month by month mm. and so on and and across different demographics so that's really useful i mean you can use that as a tool for for following a, a, a niche sector uh, and actually see what's happening in real time so i think increasingly uh, as companies need to sort of follow the rapidly changing uh, consumer trends they need to be able to sort of move uh, with the, the data that gives them that sort of quick feedback Matthew, sorry, just to go back to the National Bureau of Statistics, you, you say in the book, you know, you talk about um, how how they create the data. Could you talk a little bit about that, you know, what their methodologies are? Um, well, for example, I mean, my key area of, uh, of experience is in retail sales. So um, that, that's the one I focus on mostly in the book um, and still in my working life. Um, now, MBS gathers its retail sales figures from uh, the companies that it defines as being above a certain statistical threshold in terms of uh, both size of uh, income and also size of staff and, and so on. Uh, and then they survey medium and uh, small size uh, enterprises within the retail market. By uh, doing interviews? Or- yeah, yeah, basically. Um, and then, you know, they have to aggregate that up. So they've got real figures, apparent, you know, assumed real figures for the for the big companies and then they sort of sample the smaller companies and then aggregate up so obviously that's going to have a sort of effect of being an estimate which is fine you know we can work with that um and i think over the years that that methodology has been improved um you know in 2006 i took off six months uh because at the time we had discussions with uh, some of the investment banks uh, and they were saying that they didn't trust the retail sales figures because the, at the time GDP had just been revised uh, and along with it uh, retail sales figures. Uh, so I spent some time basically working from the bottom up to so all the different food sectors, all the different non-food sectors and aggregated them up. And what I found was that um, the retail market, the real retail market as we would define it in, you know, in the West, was actually about half the size of the official retail sales figure. Now that gap has narrowed down over the years uh, and it's much closer, but there's still a gap. And then one of the problems uh, at the time was uh, that retail sales, as they were quoted, uh, often included things like wholesale, um, sales between companies, uh, government procurement, uh, all this sort of <laughs> thing. Can't retail. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so if you had to pinpoint um, one area of, of, of lies, damn lies, and statistics where you think that, that China watchers such as ourselves are, are most at risk for being bamboozled, at, at risk for being misled at, at sort of the macro level, uh, I mean, is it the big numbers that come out like, you know, uh, price indices or, or, uh, or, or retail sales numbers? Or, yeah. or is it GDP? Or, uh, what, what, where is it? Where, where do these 
uh, numbers really uh, paint the most distorted picture of, of what we're seeing in the Chinese economy? Well, I think one of the, the, the topics that people are really scratching their heads about at the moment is what is the real size of the consumer market here? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the real issues people have is the amount of undeclared income that, uh, that particularly sort of higher end of the market, higher sort of income earners are, are actually drawing in and therefore how much they're spending. Uh, and I think there is a real gap. Uh, and it was like, well, you think oh, that it would be in the opposite way. I mean, it would be that it, they're underestimating that. Well, this is it. Yeah, probably it is. Um, now, sort of from the research I've done, we work out that uh, at the moment, based on um, the current GDP figure as quoted, uh, consumption, including retail and services and so on, uh, it represents about half of GDP. Um, but actually, you know, what could be the case is that consumption is actually more than that. And in fact, GDP is much more than what is stated. And it's very difficult to say. And I think, you know, it's it's often when we sort of look at the, the absolute figures, we, and people tend to sort of clutch to those absolute figures, and especially when they do the comparisons between China and the US, or, you know, who's the, when will China be number one, you know? Mm. Um, and it's actually meaningless because we don't really know when that will be. Um, um, well, I've always had this uh, um, thought that uh, one of the reasons why we know the GDP number is completely ridiculous is because it ignores the sex industry. Mm. Um, and in a country with a hand job shack on, on every corner, not to put too fine a point on it, you the amount of money that it. is changing hands every day in this industry, mm. I mean, this is never quantified, is it? Or, or of course it's not. No, 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 I don't think there are. I mean, the people estimate, make estimates. Um, but you that, talk about um, hand jobs and then money changing hands in the same breath, and suddenly I don't want to touch my the, the bills. Your money. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's why I only use WeChat payments. <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt with that with that disgusting joke. <laughs> that was pretty disgusting. So you're using near field scanners for your uh, transactions, are you? <laughs> <laughs> Do go on, <laughs> but yeah, I mean you know, th- that is the the big unknown at the moment is is the size of the the service industry, the service industry, shall we um, and and what that includes, and and again, you're know, talking to a lot of uh, investment bankers uh, in recent uh, months. You know, ask them what what's the area of the economy that they really don't have a handle on. It is services, consumer services, of all whether kinds. it's blowjobs or whether it's you know doing your laundry right and so yeah that's the uh, the big gap in the in the understanding of the economy at the moment all the all which tends to 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 make me think that everything is understated and not over i mean we've just talked about the gray economy the service sector uh unreported consumption by the the upper yeah upper class uh i what what where where are we seeing over reporting then in, in gdp figures i mean presumably it's uh, less than it was back in in the the bad old days of of the, the you know entirely state led uh, centrally planned economy, uh, where you know it was routine to have you know people re- preposterously overreporting just because yeah. they had you know the perverse incentive to do so. Uh, so where where's this coming from now? What, what's what's the under reporting uh, based on? 
I what, mean, the underreporting of income? Uh, that's presumably that's what we're, yeah. Uh, well, it's tax avoidance, isn't it? No, no, <laughs> what, what I'm, I'm saying, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. What I, what I meant is, you know, where, where are we seeing overstatement of GDP figures, or, which is presumably, I, I haven't read your book and I'm new to the conversation. <laughs> but uh, I, I kind of assume that whenever anyone talks about myth-busting China's numbers, that they're talking about that big grand GDP number and that GDP growth is overstated routinely. Is that not the case that you're making here? Well, you know, that's a difficult one to answer because, of course, you know, yes, it was up until very recently. And, and you know, like uh, first quarter of 2013, uh, every province uh, in that quarter uh, declared a growth in GDP that was faster than the national growth, which logically, mathematically can't, right. can't be. Uh, since then, you know, I think there's now seven or eight or in, in the next quarter were actually below the national growth figure. Uh, and that's increased quarter on quarter. So mm. either people are, are being told not to massage the figures more stringently or um, they are actually um, you know, reporting real figures rather than invented figures. So it's difficult to say, but um, you know, in terms of uh, whether or not uh, the Chinese economy is overstated or understated, in many ways it's, it's, uh, it's too much of a gray area. I mean, you know, there's, there's so much money moving around that isn't accounted for. Uh, that it's difficult to say what the real scale of the economy is here, I think. Uh, much attention is given over these days to rebalancing, of course, mm. um, to the shift from export-led sort of capital-intensive growth mm. to consumption-led growth. Uh, what's your sense for how, how, how that's moving, whether that is uh, continuing to, 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 to gain momentum, that we're moving more toward uh, consumption-led growth? Well, I think the country is. Um, whether it's gaining momentum, I, I, that's a difficult one to answer, and I'll come back to that. Uh, I think overall, uh, consumer spending will slow down gradually along with the rest of the economy. Um, the big question is is how much of uh, an influence online retail has had in actually sustaining growth or increasing growth in uh, particularly uh, the retail side, but also services. Uh, and that's quite a difficult one to to understand at the moment. Um, obviously, you could argue that online retail has taken away from bricks and mortar retailers, uh, and so it actually hasn't added anything. But also, there is the argument that, um, particularly as online retail uh, has moved into lower tier cities, actually it has increased um, the amount of consumption in those cities because it's made more products and brands available to That's people right. so they're trading up and they're spending more so i think there is still growth and i think mobile online retail is also adding to that of course with online retail the key problem is logistics how terrified would you be if you owned a bricks and mortar mall uh, right now in china of, quite <laughs> quite terrified i mean are you seeing in your research are you seeing uh, that they are uh, bricks and mortar malls and uh, shopping centers are starting to have problems. Is that coming? Yeah, the I think they're, they're, a lot of them are having to reinvent themselves completely. You know, they're, they're all sort of trying to reinvent themselves at the moment as lifestyle malls and you know this, that, and the next thing. Um, it's very difficult, and I think part of the problem was oversupply. You know, the, the, the whole build it and they will come mentality. Um, and then you know, the, 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 there was that thing. The, the, the whole thing with the, the growth in value of uh, commercial property uh, and having to incentivize retailers to come in and then the, you know, they weren't actually making any money. And uh, although it looked like there was commercial activity going on some miles, you know, the, the, the real you know, retail sales weren't happening. Uh, so it's difficult to sort of judge uh, at the moment how 
there is how much oversupply there is in the market because of, of course you know a lot of the time um, when new developments come in there's awful a lot of interest and you get this sort of new interest but is that taking away from somewhere else usually yes so it's difficult to sort of work out how much new developments actually add or how much is taken away by this sort of failure of, of existing places uh, so there's a balance there. But I think for bricks and mortar retailers, uh, definitely. And I think online has really caught a lot of uh, the leading retailers out, even though, you know, even sort of five, ten years ago, I was saying, that, that, you know, that online retail will happen as soon as people get over the sort of fear of online payments, which they have. Um, and it's really hit them. Yeah, the disruption, though, I, I think arguably has been less than it's it's been in, in, in other countries where... Uh, I think there there was less legacy here to, to deal with, and uh, people have I think merchants in China, bricks and mortar operators as well, uh, sort of understood the the threat environment they were in, and and were were a little more ready for it. Uh, just as I've seen, they're 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 very eager to embrace uh, the internet and its other newest manifestation. That is in, in O two O in online to mm. offline. Uh, they're they're extremely. I mean, I, speaking as somebody who works at Baidu, we have a new O two O initiative uh, called Baidu Connect, and mm. in, we launched it in September, and we've signed up over four hundred thousand yeah. merchants already uh, for the, for this program. How does it work, Kaiser? It's terrific. You get this little at symbol with your retail. Say you're Liangzi, um, you know, uh, foot massage. You can you just type in at Liangzi or Liangzi Jiansheng or something like that uh, at Heidi Lao, and it will. It's sort of a domain name for the mobile internet. Uh, you 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 get their web app basically. It shows mm-hmm. up immediately, and you can enjoy discounts. You can enjoy, uh, you know, you you, you see, uh, you can what, make reservations or or uh, make appointments with say uh, masseuses or what, whatnot. Uh, and more importantly, it's also a CRM device. It's so that you can establish your for customer relations mm-hmm. management. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> it's a it's a terrific thing. Um, but I, I, I'm I'm seeing that. Uh, I think the, the internet, w- w- it may have severely disrupted retail. It may also prove to be uh, a savior for it. Yeah. I was also thinking, you know, we were talking about lifestyle mm. uh, uh, centers. Jeremy, what's the the one thing you, that that all successful shopping centers in Beijing seem to have in common? The ones that, that you really see a lot of foot traffic in that are bustling where it's hard to find a parking space. It's that they're filled with restaurants. They've got two whole floors, three whole floors oh, yeah. of restaurants. I mean, yeah, like right. Joy City in Chaoyang, yeah. for example. My God, I mean that place is filled with yeah. people. Yeah, and, I mean, and Chinese people do like to eat. Oh, so <laughs> I, I suppose that is one. I mean, that's the lifestyle. Well, most people right. do. You can't, you can't, you can't <laughs> Chinese people particularly. Like <laughs> yeah. Alibaba is not going to deliver you a nice, you know, gourmet meal at the same time. Uh, at, uh, in a nice right, environment. Right. No, no, exactly. No. Or, or, or the fun that you can have at some of the malls. I mean, you know, the one that I've said in the past on this program is like the, the most vibrant cultural scene in Beijing right now is Sunny Twin Village yeah. <laughs> unfortunately it's the, it's the only public space with art that's that's good is that People, a good sign or a bad sign I'm not sure. I think it's a it's a sign of the impending apocalypse <laughs> former opium merchants swire are now running the I just came uh, from there yeah um, yeah cool. anyway well actually coming back to the uh, online to offline I thought the um you know, with Suding, 
yeah. uh, changing their whole business model recently. That was quite interesting. So, so Suning is a big uh, electronic, white electronic goods and electronics and yeah. uh, retail. And so they've got a chain. huge yeah. chain of stores across the country. But their idea is to switch from being just a bricks and mortar retailer to actually being an online retailer that has stores. And there was that whole switch of mentality almost. And that the stores become the you know the online fulfillment, tools, fulfillment, right. fulfillment exactly, uh, and I think again you know you come back to the supermarkets. Yes, they've been slow to get online, but again you know they have logistics. They have the this you know logistics spread across the country to service the the stores. Now, of course, they've got an opportunity to use those logistics to actually fulfill. Uh, and drive online sales and of course you know there's the possibility for not just supermarkets but many retailers to actually con uh, connect with consumers in lower tier cities where they don't have stores and build a customer base before they actually even open a store hmm. Interesting. i think we're getting towards the end of the show but before we get to recommendations i'd like to ask you a sort of non-professional question well mm. partly professional i suppose but you've been coming to china since the 1980s but in mm. fact the last almost a decade you've been living in Kuala Lumpur in yeah. Malaysia, right? Um, how does that feel as somebody whose who's day-to-day life is really about the Chinese economy, mm. observing it from, uh, perhaps not afar, but from, from, from a distance? Does that, does that give you a perspective? Uh, I think it does, actually. I mean, when I spent more time in China, I, I've always felt that I was getting immersed and I, I lost that kind of wider world perspective. No, okay. When I sort of spent a lot of time here, there was less in the way of internet and news and so on. So you were a bit more cut off. Um, but now I think it's, it's useful for me, not just in terms of having that wider perspective, but when I come back to China, I spot the differences more easily, I think. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I also spot what hasn't changed, of course. Right, right. And what about lifestyle, uh, to use a, a rather horrible word? Um, <laughs> how would you compare Shanghai with KL? Well, KL is a lot more relaxed, definitely. Um, and of course, it's got a great, uh, uh, great uh, climate. Really good food. Uh, you got the mixture of the Indian, Malay, and Chinese foods, as, uh, which is very nice. And of course, you can get in your car, drive for an hour, and you're in a rainforest, which is uh, you can't do that in Shanghai. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> or Beijing. Okay, let's change the subject. <laughs> um, so <laughs> let's move on to recommendations. Right, uh, every week at the end of the episode, we uh, we recommend something that's China related or maybe not China related. Uh, and we always start with Jeremy, so let's let's not change that. All right, I'm just going to recommend a Kickstarter campaign for a guest we had on recently, uh, Sasha Matusak, his film about Chinese martial arts mm. uh, that they're raising money for. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, go and give him some money. And we'll have the link on the podcast page yeah. so you can find that. <laughs> Great, uh, Sasha Matusak and yeah. his Kickstarter campaign for his new kung fu flick. Matthew, what do you have for us? Ah, oh, recommendation. Come to Malaysia. Have a holiday. <laughs> Go and enjoy the, the, the warm climate, the wonderful food, and the rainforest. Uh, and the wonderful and airline, of course. Exactly, exactly. Take a risk. Right. <laughs> I, I've actually not been to Malaysia since, oh God, 98 or something like that, where my old band played a, a show at Shah Alam oh, right. Stadium there. I had a wonderful time. It was, it's a terrific country. It uh, is. Yeah, when they're, when they're not, you know, prosecuting people for sodomy. <laughs> um, I've been uh, enjoying the shit out of uh, Will and Ariel Durant's uh, Story of Civilization series. Uh, it's an 11-book series uh, that starts with Our Oriental Heritage and then, you know, The Life of Greece, Caesar and Christ. The one that I'm reading right now is called The Age of Faith. 
which uh, is it's an eleven hundred page monster of a book, but it's it's just absolutely lovely. People don't write history like that anymore. Uh, Will and Ariel Durant, the story of civilization. I'm going to you know one of these days I'm going to get through all eleven of them. <laughs> it kills me, but it's it's just great. Yeah, deep man. Do you have to read them sequentially, or do they no, make no, sense no, you can, reading? No, no, you can pick you can pick oh, up anywhere, okay. anywhere and read. I mean, the one that won the Pulitzer was uh, Rousseau and Revolution. Uh, it's mm. and then the Age of Napoleon is also supposedly a, a very good one. Um, okay, very good. great. Well, uh, thank you, Kaiser. I'll thank you because uh, <laughs> I kind of you know, my scheduling issues. And thank you very much for your tolerance, Matthew. Matthew, you're welcome. Uh, Thanks, author Matthew. Author of Myth Busting China's Numbers. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Thank you. And we will see you next week on Cynical Podcast. Take care. Mm-hmm.